it to me it's that it's that decision he makes to choose himself and getting his hand back so and don't get it like wrong he is at, he absolutely just wants to fit back into normal society yeah he wants to go back into the, the working for the oppressor he he wants to go back to he this world where back, his... where he is in the power dynamics he's he's above these other people and he that's all he wants Hey guys, welcome back. Today we are talking about a movie that takes on the classic alien invasion movie with a twist. Welcome to Cinematics. I'm Ryan. And I'm Mike. And on today's show, uh, we're going to be discussing our thoughts and uh, feelings about the 2009 film District 9. Uh, this movie was uh, made for $30 million and went on to gross over 210 worldwide, with 37 coming on the from the domestic opening weekend box office. Um, it's uh, written and directed by Neil Blomkamp, uh, who went on to do Elysium and Chappie. Uh, it was co-written by his now wife, uh, Terry Tatchell, who also co-wrote Chappie and is co-writing with him the sequel to this, District 10. Which I will totally watch. <laughs> Additionally, uh, this movie's director of photography was Trent uh, Opelok, who uh, started with all of Neil's films to start his career out uh, before getting into the Marvel Universe with Winter Soldier and most recently doing Endgame. Uh, and finally, it stars Charlto Copley um, in the lead role, and he went on to star in all of Neil's movies, uh, Elysium and Chappie, as well as The A-Team and Hardcore Henry. Um, so those are those are the basic details of this film. Now, Ryan, uh, what led you to picking this movie for us to look at? Well, I watched it. It came out when I was in high school, uh, right close to the end of my time in high school. And I remember going into it expecting to see just like a big fun romp alien movie that was just about like alien invasion or something. Didn't really know much of of what it was about. Didn't really fully watch the trailer and came out of it <laughs> realizing that it was not fully what I was expecting, but not in a bad way. Um and and something that that uh, Blomkamp says in some of his interviews is that he was hoping that it was gonna be a bit of both worlds of of having that like fun sci-fi romp with some comedy and satire to it that like gives it that sort of action movie feel while being set against this more political backdrop that gives it some weight, I guess, if you will. Um, for myself, um, this came out just as I was finishing. Um my year-long program uh, uh film program and uh it got a big push at the film school i was attending partly because it's the same film school neil blomkamp attended here in vancouver uh called vancouver film school uh he went he was in a different program i was in film production he was in 3d animation and design um but it still the school was very proud of it it's he's one of like two successful graduates from the school <laughs> uh the other being uh scott Mosier, the producer of uh kevin smith's films uh kevin smith also that's where he met him was there but he dropped out so they they don't really 
talk about him as much. <laughs> Understandably, I guess. Uh, uh, yeah. And so, um, so this movie, it was kind of, you know, it came out at a time where I was really get finally in getting into film and getting into working in film. And, um, and again, it got a big push. There was like premiere tickets that we all got for free at our school. If you went somewhere by a certain time of day, they gave you one for free or whatever. That's cool. And, um, so I remember seeing it, um, you know, the Tuesday before it came out that weekend and, uh, we all really liked it and, you know, and there were certain themes and stuff I got right away from watching it, but it wasn't until like a rewatch and a stuff, a couple other things that I, I got to the deeper, I mean, it, it hits you over the head with the, with the um, South African apartheid kind of, um, visual and, uh, and even in the ad campaign, I don't know if you remember the first trailer that came out was the first extended trailer that came out on television spends like the first 30 seconds doing the uh showing the interviews that from the first act of this right movie, yeah where it's interviewing uh local south africans and they're saying things like they shouldn't be here why are we paying so much to house them and feed them yeah all of this stuff and it and it and it you know and this was at this in 2009 this is you know um nearing the end of uh bush's war in iraq and um and all the I mean, and every everything that was stirred up geopolitically across the world, not just because of that, just because of the times. And, you know, there was starting to be move, uh, movement of peoples and, and Syrian refugees showing up in different countries and, and refugees from all different countries showing up into different countries. So it being them playing on that in the commercial and that ad about having people talking negatively about what what you would think is the th- like re- uh, uh, refugee peoples and then it turns out that it's aliens was like a big twist in the trailer and it worked as well as i think a twist in a movie um because it got people very excited to watch this and and i remember um the whole no humans or no like humans only posters going up all around town and stuff like that and um so they very, very much in the marketing and everything they try they started on the theme, the whole themes of refugees and and displaced peoples and that kind of thing. So I must have been really blind to it then to not know what was coming when I got into that. <laughs> well, it, who knows if you even paid attention to the marketing? Like well, you were in high school and were you watching? I don't know, whatever. Maybe you weren't watching the same content. And again, I was literally in vancouver's epicenter for people talking about this movie yeah yeah so and and i I, also find that like i tend to avoid trailers if i can if i don't know what a movie's going to be about at all or have any idea i'll i'll watch it to get an idea but generally speaking i find and it, it becomes more and more a problem these days but you know trailers tend to give away a lot of the movie and i like to go into them without any expectations because I have had movies completely ruined for me because of expectations. So I probably had someone tell me, hey, I saw this thing for this cool alien movie that we should watch. And I was probably just like, great, let's do it. And then never looked it up for exactly that reason. I I um I love trailers. I, I like them. I think well-cut trailers show you what the movie is without telling you what the movie's going to do. Yeah, yeah. And I love that aspect of them. And I think it's trailers just, are great. It's just... And, and usually that first trailer, that first, you know, minute 30 kind of cut of a trailer or two minute and 30 cut of a trailer is usually to me is the one to watch 
that's the one that the filmmaker had his hands on and that kind of thing. It's the one and that then, spoils the least usually. Yeah, and then as you get closer and closer to um uh to the to the premiere date, the tr- trailers get shorter and shorter formats and then by the time it's your it's coming out this weekend, they're having 15 second clips before YouTube videos or videos on <laughs> whatever site you're on. Yeah, yeah. And they and it's just saying like, look at this. This is what this movie's about and they try to show you all the best bits and usually the best bits are from the third act of a movie, so then yeah, you're giving yeah. away parts of the movie. Um this movie, yeah, it's marketing I thought was really really smart. And for a relatively low budget movie, like 30 million dollars is to any normal person a very big sum of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But to the film industry, especially is, in 2009. Yeah, the the um, the film industry is very much uh, $30 million is very much, uh, I would say, lower middle class, maybe. Like, you're at studio level to a point with $20 million, $30 million, but you're not at a big level of movie making at all there. Yeah, you're, and and um, you had said in some of your research, it turned out that, uh, that um, $30 million was the kind of top budget they wanted to go or Neil was comfortable going. Because yeah. anymore he would have to do more answering to the studio, and he would have to, yeah, and it, there would be a lot more involved in the more money he gets. Which is which is always kind of a problem when you get into those. Like when there's people who have that much money on the line, they want to have a say, and that's, you know, while that is entirely reasonable, it also kind of comes down to like it breaks apart the vision and takes away control from the person who is creating the story. So yeah, it was definitely, according to him, a self. A self-set cap, if you will, of of uh, budgetary. And I didn't mention it in the opening details, but one of the one of the four nominations for the Oscars this this received was for best adapted screenplay. And the reason why it's an adapted screenplay is because this is based off a short film he did in two thousand five called Alive in Joburg. Mm-hmm. And that movie and the digital effects and everything about that movie caught the interest of peter jackson and the weta studio people so he had a fairly big uh benefactor behind him when he was entering the studio system so probably like a lot of the wise decisions he made on this movie i would assume was because of the guidance of peter jackson and weta studios and speaking of weta we should um there's a lot of heavy stuff we got to talk about in this movie to a point you know there's there's a lot of really really important themes and story and character stuff that's got to go on. But as we always do, we should talk about the, the technical aspects first and get into the cine of it. And I think the first thing that we have to talk about and the first question I wanted to ask you is what do you think about the documentary style filmmaking that they use? So I like that aspect of the movie. I thought it fit well. The problem I had with it uh, watching it this time is they abandon it very early and uh they start showing you things that aren't involved in the documentary and then they just it then it just gets cut to at i think about you know uh two-fifths into the movie it cuts straight to narrative kind of thing with interspersions yeah well they they always cut to some sort of security camera footage of or or news footage of or helicopter drone footage of whatever but for the most part the movie starts out as a as a documentary and i guess that's to catch us up to theoretically to catch us up to the present day narrative which is where we join the narrative 
But even when it, even before the metamorphosis starts to happen uh, to Vickers, he Vickers, Vickers, sorry, we meet the the prawn Christopher Christopher Johnson Christopher believe, Johnson, yep. yeah, and we meet him and he's scavenging for goods with his son or his little person, little and his prawn friend. he's carrying for. So we meet them and they're they're looking for things and that's that breaks away from the documentary. We spend like thirty seconds to a minute with them digging through some stuff looking for the fluid yeah yeah and then we cut back to vicus and the documentary stuff and then we continue with that for a bit before it starts getting really crazy yeah i i i kind of bumped on i think the same sort of thing you did with that too i i think that it's the doc style footage is a really interesting way to express to an audience who doesn't know anything about the world you're creating what's going on without just having characters talk about it because there's nothing worse than a character explaining something to another character for the sake of the audience when the characters should both know and not need it explained so the news doc style stuff was really good for that but at a certain point they had to kill it because you can't show the whole story if you don't have it at least not in a way that makes a lot of sense no i you would have had to put in some sort of um MacGuffin-esque technology <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. that was is like, a, oh, it's not cameramen that are following them. It's a floating a drone. drone. Yeah, and then that drone stays with them the whole the whole time. But, but then, then I, how do they not find him? Right? Well, but I, I mean, I have some questions about the, that. Okay, anyway, yeah. we're we're gonna get to that. We're gonna get to that. There's some stuff to that. But and one of the things that Blomkamp said was that he wants to make real sci-fi, which is like that people can sit down and watch it and really feel like it belongs in the real world and it's it could actually happen and so part of his um part of his explanation for why he talked about using that doc style footage is because it makes us feel like we're right in the middle of it like it's really happening and i felt that that part worked really well i thought that it did really get me in a place where i was in that world which is a world that i know nothing about and i've never been particularly involved with because well, I'm not from South Africa, first of all, for the main. Um, so it's something that I'm not very familiar with, but I felt like I was being pulled into it in a really effective way. Well, and I would say that works partly because of where we're raised. Uh, often, at least by before 2009, our uh, exposure to Africa and its problems was news and and like infomercials trying to get money from for, for some cause so like susan sarandon holding a poor orphaned african yeah, baby yeah. and saying for as little as a dollar a day whatever yeah. or whatever so there's, there's that stuff and then there's also uh this particular pe- peoples have overthrown the government in this african country and you know they show people in the back of a toyota truck <laughs> shooting yeah, guns yeah, yeah. into the air or whatever and you're like oh okay and so, yeah, you, our exposure to that to the country, that country, and the media, or and it's or it's con- the content produced by that country always comes in like a documentary slash uh, infotainment kind of look. Yeah, yeah. So for that reason, I thought it worked really well. And like I said, that trailer was it like it really set the mood. It really set the mood, and it really it really set a lot of people's mind working like it it really i think it really it did what people what you're supposed to do with a cold open or the opening credit sequence of a movie or something to the where you're supposed to place the audience right away into the 
kind of the mood and feeling of the story more than the story. And then because you you're going to take the rest of the time to tell the story, but you're trying to put them right in the setting, right in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I guess to to wrap up that part, then I had kind of thought too that like. Cause I like you, I bumped on the the fact that it sort of just fades out eventually, and I I wrote the notes down that I was like kind of wasn't a fan of that. And then as you get further on, it seems like it's more random and interspersed whenever it can be. But like it felt a lot more shoehorned in as you went along. But I, I, as I sat and thought about that, I also kind of felt like I was overthinking it, and that like if you start one way, in my head, you can't just you know, hard stop, go to something else without it being jarring and difficult to, you know, the audience then has to like in their head, in the midst of trying to watch what's going on, change gears. So I kind of actually came settled on the idea that I, th- I felt like it was more effective to do it that way because it weans you out of it where you start seeing little pieces that aren't documentary and you're like, Oh, okay. Things are changing, but it's not jarring so that when you finally do go to the more uh, narrative style and the less doc style, you're not just getting whacked with it. And it was obviously a conscious choice because there was a lot of points where there's things uh, like Vickis pushing the lens down of the camera yeah, shooting yeah, him. Yeah. And at any one of those points, all you need is 30 seconds after that where you you see the cameraman in our nar- in our narrative camera now yeah and now we realize we're in the narrative we're not in the documentary anymore and uh but they never show that they never really show that it's it's just it's kind of when he gets hospitalized that it the the documentary goes away and and that kind of thing because well the night before when he goes to his party surprise party yeah right? which kind of feels like it could be paparazzi style someone's following him home and um and part of that to me comes also from uh, from like me being like oh well i mean why would they you know the questions i was asking about plot throughout that you know maybe it was well trying yeah to solve that um, issue a little bit but. especially if that documentary is about the mun not MNU. the mnu yeah sorry not the not the not about him not about it's not a vicus documentary it's a it's a documentary about what his position does and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then why is all of that? But that's also the kind of the found footage problem of like, why did we find it at all? So like... Well, but see, I don't like because of the way the movie ends and it ends with talking heads again and ends with people speculating about what the, what's going to happen in the near future. It The documentary plays as if it's a retrospective documentary and the narrative section we get that isn't actually filmed is perhaps like either told in reenactment and or story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and that was something I guess now that you said that, that I noticed too, that it was good for was that uh, we were right away in the beginning. You're set up that something goes wrong because you're getting these, like um, his mom talking about how he was a good son and like his wife looking at something that he made her as though he was gone. So you get set up with these ideas that, that something has happened, but you don't know what, well, and, and that leads you to be even suspicious. His, even his assistant that he's training, yeah. you see him, he's in the, in in the, prison orange, guard. the orange jumpsuit Which of prison guard. is hidden until the end, in the sense that you don't see it as a prison because he's too close. No. But uh, you, 
but I, you see the orange. I I read it right away, but maybe it's because I'd seen it again, but the, the, or seen it before that when I was rewatching it for this. But I read it right away that he was in prison, and then because the it does, it I does didn't. a quick cut from his talking head at the start to him in a business suit, like a tone brown biz, down brown business suit, and uh, and so I instantly made that. Con- I was like, oh, I see. So he's. Already. It's definitely suggested. I know that the first time I saw it and then coming back to it after years without having watched it, I forgot and didn't really, for myself, didn't really notice it uh, the first time through until the second time we see him and you actually see the prison outfit. Then I was like, oh, of course, obviously. But I didn't pick it up the first time. Um, and on that point of, of Cine, I guess, for another minute here, uh, I'm curious with that doc thing, what you thought about about the shaky cam, uh, if you will, uh, because for the most part, I felt like it was pretty good. It wasn't. It didn't go born identity all over the place all the time. It's uh, first. It's funny that you say born identity because uh, it's the sequels to born that gets into the like the. It no- does. The, the born identity is where people were like, "Oh, this is a thing that people are starting well, to do now." Yeah. So. I don't know if it was just the Bourne series, but Paul. So Doug Lyman does the first Bourne movie, and then Paul Greengrass does the next three, I think. And Greengrass is the one who really developed that like close-up yeah. fight camera thing, or at least from my recollection. This is no notes. This is just going <laughs> this off is my just brain. pulling it up. Yeah, gotcha. Um, and so this movie comes in the end of that decade where we really started doing close-up fight sequences and getting into shaky cam and doing more handy can like uh shoulder mounted camera stuff and it, but we were all we were getting you like because of that we're used to it and it doesn't feel wrong it didn't feel wrong and it also feels right in the faux documentary right down to the comedy version of the office and parks and rec yeah yeah so um i don't know if parks and rec would have been out by the time this came out but uh it, close to if not and so this is a this was a style of shooting that had become popular and for the run and gun aspect of what they were trying to achieve uh, it they pull it like because that's what this whole thing is supposed to be about right like i think part of what neil blomkamp was trying to achieve with special effects like you're talking about real effects and that his, the his short film alive in Joburg shows off is that whole thing like found footage or or cell phone footage or just you know not not the perfect framed shot that you then digitally put things in. Yeah. It's yeah. like a shaky camera where we're seeing whatever we're seeing and it's not, you know, in the same way, I guess Clover Field and that kind of thing would have been yeah. around this time. And they, they just found like found footage monster movies were becoming a bit of a thing as well. Blair Witch projects. Yeah. Kind of, that would have yeah. been, that would have been the first, right? And yeah, yeah. that was like, uh, that was ninety eight or 99 maybe i think that the first blair witch came out with late 90s i think because i was in i was yeah i was just getting into high school maybe when it came out or or right around then yeah yeah um but that would have been or like that would have been early found footage stuff and that was actually done in a found footage kind of ass way yeah and and i i think i i liked the way they approached it in this there like like i said there were some moments where it got real intense for a bit and i i was having a hard time keeping pace with it occasionally but that was all motivated within the moment like those kind of moments were like when the camera's being shoved away or when like crazy stuff is happening and like the cameraman's not doing his thing which fun fact about that by the way they continually refer to the cameraman as trent 
who is the DP, who is using the Steadicam that whole time. So they're literally using his name while they're talking to him, which I thought was great. That's awesome. Um, yeah, no, th- I thought that was interesting. and I and I and But I did, like... Because the big selling thing in this movie, when I went to see it, was the effects. Yeah. Like, oh, that's yeah. what everyone talked up, was how realistic everything appeared and how whatever makeup and digital effects were done, how seamless everything was even in the few frames that a camera being pushed away pans across you see the feet of a, of a different prawn or a different yeah. uh, well and he talks about that in some of his interview in one particular he has an interview with Adam Savage um, which this is by the way my introduction to the fact that I had no idea that Adam Savage was doing this kind of thing now I only know him for Mythbusters and like I know that that show seems I think kind of fell apart a little bit um but I did not know that he was in like this whole nother field of stuff now. And I found him, I was like, Oh, I'm going to start watching this shit, (laughs) but he does an interview with him. That's about 40 minutes long. And he has a lot of really good insight in it. But one of the things he's talking about is, is the use of, of VFX and, and how like, and I mean like one, a great example of the opposite would be Pacific Rim where they're big, grandiose, glorious shots showing off how amazing their VFX are and the cool shit that you get to see. Whereas what they aimed for in this one and what I think made really sold the VFX on it was that they didn't do that. You know, like you, you see this, uh, a prawn here or a robot there or a spaceship there. And other than like the big wide establishers with the mothership floating in the air, they kind of, it pans over it and it moves on and you never get like a super close look at it. So you're just like, Oh, that feels like a real thing that could be there. And then, but if you look at it too long, you start to, the illusion fades away a little bit. And I'm, uh, of all aspects of filmmaking, um, the post-production and post-visual effects is probably part where I'm the most naive. Um, And to be honest, I have no idea which is easier. Doing like really, truly amazing photorealistic stuff that is, that you put in the wide frame or getting maybe what's a slightly rougher, but it still looked really realistic to me in a shaky camera leaving now based on all the conditions that are placed on us when we're working on like during production days and you know when if you're doing a moving shot that's digital all the timings and everything they all the measurements they make you take and all that stuff it seems as if a moving camera makes digital work harder it does so that's another thing that he talks about in that interview and i've also like myself as well visual effects like i i know editing pretty well i know sound post kind of well ish but i know very very little about how to do visual effects um but i've listened to some people talk about it and i've listened to him talk about it and he he was saying that for this they had a breakdown of how many shots they could have and they had a breakdown of like well we know that like if there's these components it's an expensive shot and if it's these components it's not an expensive shot Um, and the way he broke it down is that if there's movement, like a lot of movement, and if there's people passing across in front of effects or moving, like the effect moving in complicated ways or having stuff move in front of it, that becomes more complicated and more difficult versus like those big wides, uh, like helicopter style shots that are just slow tracks where you see the ship, like that would be a a quick and easy VFX shot. But something like, you know, a fight scene, where the like for example one that really stood out to me was when they're looking well i say they when christopher and his kid are looking for the vial that has the black fluid in it after it's been confiscated 
and they're going around like looking at stuff and the, he has a flashlight and it's lighting the the scene so like obviously there's a person there holding a flashlight right that they've had to track and either rotoscope out or do some other kind of replacement and so that kind of stuff i think would get more complicated but yeah and and uh one of the major fight sequences also was one that really impressed me was the um when the nigerians capture vicus and want to cut off his arm and he's in the shed with them alone and he starts using the alien tech um that scene uh, while on the day you know they would it would have had to been very choreographed for when all the guys are getting pulled by ropes and getting flung and and breakable walls and all that stuff but but it's still like the that was shot in that born style for lack of a better term (laughs) yeah and and you know and the elements in that were pretty amazing a you needed his hand to be the like his hand was a major element obviously but by then it had it had grown up onto his shoulder and his and start, starting to encroach on his neck, which I think for the most part was probably uh, per, like visual prosthetic. was prosthetic. Yeah. But his hand, I don't think probably was because of the movement and stuff it has to achieve. Yeah, I I didn't I couldn't find out enough to know for sure. Yeah, um, I didn't have but, any behind the scenes stuff on this one like we've yeah. had on our past few. So but what I, I what I suspect is that in the scenes where the hand is not doing a whole bunch of shit, they probably had like a prosthetic that would fit on, like when they're shooting like wrist up or something or whatever, they probably had that built onto him. But like when he's cutting his thumb off, uh, after when he's like, I got to get this, get rid of this, that part probably was, I have to imagine was at least somewhat visual effects. Yeah. And, and so in that fight sequence, when he picks up the alien tech gun, it has like a little furnace in the front. It also is shooting, a visual air blast of some sort and i just i don't know i was pretty amazed how seamless all this felt and i know you know this is i mean this is not that long ago but to to today it's you know roughly uh 12 years ago now that this movie came out it's a year after the iphone one Mm -hmm. was introduced Mm -hmm. to market so i guess (laughs) probably the year this came out or was just because this came out in spring, I think, 2009. And that would have been, like, for Christmas 2008. So that's how close we are to, <laughs> like, for, for it not being... For, for it to be pretty amazing technology, I think, that all of this was cut so seamlessly together. And, and another thing as well that I thought was just overall really well done was production design as a whole. Like, the one thing that really stood out to me was the design of that mech as we got to the further on there or, or even right at the beginning when it first comes out you know it's like how do you you have to make uh like a humanoid looking mech walker that would be designed by something that was not a human so how would they make it look and it looked kind of bug-like and fish-like and exoskeletal and whatever and i don't know it just fit really well but it also had like this really organic sort of feeling to it, like the little feeler things that were coming off its nose or like when it's getting shot to crap, it's all like spitting up oil and stuff. And I thought all of that was like just super well constructed for like the design of the creatures. Yeah, I agree. And, but I mean, even the whole district nine itself, like the whole shanty town, uh, the whole, it, it like is obviously very reminiscent of what, what are, um, uh, refugee camps in various countries look like today. You want a news. fun fact about that? I do want a fun fact. It was all shot 
on location in a place called Soweto, which is from what I looked at on a map, it looks like a suburb style place just outside of Johannesburg. And from what Blomkamp said, it was all shot on location in this one in like the poorest district of this poor suburb of Johannesburg. So like all of that was to an extent real. Yeah, and I and I obviously and I and it was tr- it looked like it was trying to be evocative of of the districts of apartheid and and that yeah, kind of yeah. thing and then what and the holdover as you've discussed since then. Even down though when they go when he's doing his tour and they're doing their searches of these homes and the little false right. panels and yeah, the way yeah. the the aliens had constructed these things so panels over other panels and just the detail work in the set deck could have been something I thought that fell by the wayside in a movie like this because of so much of the concentration going to other things. Yeah. 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 But, uh, but the, just the fine details uh, of the stuff they would have had to do on the day. And listen, I have no idea what that poor suburb actually looks like. Um, so maybe they didn't do that much work, but it looks like they did a fair bit of work to achieve what they achieved in this. And it yeah, looks, yeah. It, it, I felt it was spe- pretty spectacular for, for a, how, um, you know, how this, if this happened in real life, how it would yeah, really look. Yeah. And so my imagination worked alongside the imagination of these filmmakers. Yes, very much so. And I, I'll add this in here because it connects to that fun fact that I had just brought up, and I don't know where else it'll fit in, so I'm just going to throw it out here now. Um, Blomkamp also said that he had a... um, They ended up shooting in a back lot, essentially, that was created when a group of people was forcibly relocated from this area to a new area and created this big empty back lot that they then acquired, went in and made a movie about forced relocation in, which has just got a level of depth and perfection to it that is just kind of unreal almost. It's very interesting. It's intriguing to what they're going to do with the sequel because the early name of the sequel is... District 10, which is the famed district they're moving them all to, the tent city that they're moving yeah, them all to. Yeah. The place that is, quote-unquote, not better. Yeah, Sort yeah. of like a concentration camp. Yeah, yeah. Or, or the thing that popped in, and this is just like me speaking from what I know uh, and from the culture that we come in, but like when I saw that, I thought about Japanese internment camps in World War II, and, you know, that was kind of the vibe I got it was very evocative and powerful either way. Right, right. Yeah, no. I um so I thought overall that the visual effects and the practical effects for this movie the work was outstanding. It was. Um and there was some there was some fun little details to it that are less about production design but are related to the ideas of production design. Like one thing that stood out to me um that I didn't notice until the last watch through of it was that when they're first getting out of those troop carriers, when they come to uh, come to start serving notices, there's a, a voice in the car that comes on that's like, you have arrived at your destination. And it's just this really soft-sounding like GPS or like what you'd hear on a train, like transit, talking about like, be careful, keep your vest on. or And, and like, all, but also like the, there's this little, little throwaway. And, and all of it is like, you can't, it's low enough that unless you're paying attention to it, you can't hear it. But the sec- uh, the second time you hear that voice, they're saying, and remember, a smile is cheaper than a bullet. You know, little little details that 
they they tried really hard to give this satirical sort of humor to the movie that takes some of the edge off that I think was really important for expressing what needed to be said. Yeah, I I think in in a like a the society is presented as a bit of a you know a totalitarian government and so and we are looking at some of the cogs in that system and yeah i think they do a good job of well even even with uh vicus's demeanor at the start of the movie it's he's obviously seems like a bit of a fool but he also is like happy go lucky for lack of a better term like he's like he has this i guess this kind of shallow emotional depth to him and it's and it's kind of a it gives but again but he he seems happy as I, the, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, best yeah. way to describe it but he he's in this really really crappy system that he he says he doesn't know about but he only doesn't know about certain extremes of it because he is aware that the place that they're evicting all these two people in his words is like a concentration camp but it's also but he's then not aware of the genetic testing and the and the torture. Yeah. But I mean, if you but have like, one, generally the other is shortly following yeah. it. Yeah. Which leads us very nicely into talking about themes and story. I think, uh, unless there's anything else you want to add to the cine part of it. No, I thought I just like I'll reiterate that I thought it was really well shot and looked really good. There you go. Um. So one of the things I noticed, obviously, we have to t- we we got to talk about the the issues that are brought up here of of apartheid and of of systematic racism and problems with all of that sort of thing. And the movie does does a very good job in my mind of presenting characters and and one of the one of the things that I thought was really interesting is that it it is in a lot of ways it's a movie about power. It's a movie about who has power and i think that vicus as a character really stands out because he seems to me like the kind of person who is soft-spoken probably has not had a lot of of his own sort of or hasn't felt like he's had a lot of um control over his own life and so when when it comes to his position of power at mnu even though he seems like the sort of person in that first five minutes who we meet that is like kind and caring and probably wouldn't do a lot of the shitty things he does. He does it anyways because he's using it, this position of power as a way to reclaim some of whatever he may or may not have had in his own life. I No, and I get it. And I think it's it, that is part of the satire you're talking about. Bec- but it because... And his happy naivete is that he's in the system and he's part of the system and he doesn't question the system. And there's a fair bit of comfort to not having to like look at or think about any of those larger questions. It's very easy to blind yourself to the goings on if you yeah, and want to put those blinders on. Exactly. And it, and it's all it's all part it's all part and parcel to this whole the whole, you know, um systematic white supremacy and all that and in this more gen- like species supremacy yeah but still it, that all comes from that colonial white supremacist kind of attitude and uh and yeah and he's in this he's in the system and he um because and you can tell because like even while they're showing him in the jovial starts of the beginning one of the first things he does they do is they 
oh, like here, you can have this. It's a uh, memory of your first abortion. And then uh, they call like murdering the egg sacks, aborting the babies. And yeah. then they burn them. And he does that whole little joking little anecdote about how it sounds like popcorn. And, and he's laughing over the, and this is like eight minutes into the movie. Yeah. And he's laughing about the extermination of a species. That, um, that scene was brutal. And that, that was actually on my comment about context at the beginning of this, about like not expecting what I was coming in for. The fact that that's eight minutes into the movie and you're already, it's already like, here's the ideas that we're trying to get to you. That like that floored me when we watched when I watched that the first time. And, you know, and the, like and this movie at first glance uh, could be taken as another like white savior uh, that you know from from the dances with wolves type of thing to uh, like every time that movie trope has been used um but generally in those movies the the protagonist is the one who is begrudgingly abiding by the standards and practices of the society in which he hails from um and the rules that that he's governed by and then but is but slowly becomes more and more detached from that and is able to see the madness of his society and the beauty of the other society and that kind of thing. And, uh, whereas in this one, it's um, not that at all. Well, and I don't think it ever, and on the, yeah, it's not that at all. Uh, right away you, you get the impression that the people he's working for are the bad guys. And then you get the impression and that, that he's he, on board with it. He's on board with it and there, therefore is a bad guy. Like he's enjoying the enjoying every minute of the power he gets going through yeah. District 9 and serving those notices and well, having that kind of authority. Yeah, and, it, and these systems um, allow, allow racists and white supremacists and, and uh, in this case, species supremacists, uh, it allows all of them to um, to hide slash flourish because there's the the leader of the of the strike force team or whatever they're called. I forget his name. Uh, Cooper. Or Kubis. Kubis. Uh, you know, there's the when he's standing over over Christopher Johnson and he has that line where he's like, I he's like, I can't, I can't believe, believe I get paid to do I this. I can't yeah. believe I get paid to do this, indicating that he'd gladly kill all of his that species for free and and it's it's all part of this so they they never let you forget that this is like the the government the side of the people who are putting this documentary out are the bad people yeah the movie never lets you forget that but also it's showing that in the documentary indicating that the people the viewers watching the documentary wouldn't see that as a bad thing yeah so they're also part of the system it puts you as kind of the bad guy so i got two things to say the first one is an idea that I want to float by you. I am interested to see how it comes out. I've gone through it in my head a few times, and I'm curious about how what you think about it. And the second one is a question to follow it. Um, so one of the thoughts I had on one of the watches I was, I was going through is that one of the things that makes this movie such a challenging, um, a challenging watch philosophically and mentally is that we are trained as people to empathize with movies about people. We see other humans on screen, we see their faces, we see their emotions, and we side with them. And we have people that we can tell are good people and people that we can tell are bad people, or at least we're meant to side with one or the other, but they're all people. And in this, 
there is no good human. All of the people that we are uh, empathetically, emotionally, and filmically trained to root for are the bad guys, and the people that we are meant to side with, the ones who are being oppressed, the ones who are having uh, these atrocities done to them, are extremely hard to empathize with because they're intentionally made quite, um, I think in Blomkamp's words, he calls them grotesque, which he says he does on purpose because he's trying to emphasize the humanity and the fact that when you're looking at these people, these aliens, you're meant to to try and see past the the surface and to get the sense of humanity that they have and that sort of relatability, but emphasize that difficulty by making them very hard to empathize with. So I guess the wrap, the, the full wraparound of that is that we are inherently we want to side with the humans because they're humans and the movie is showing us that the aliens who we have such a hard time connecting to are the good guys and we learn the humanity within them and and eventually not even quite early on begin siding with them which is like kind of a hyperbolic representation of how people view other people i think uh, but it what it's what makes the movie so challenging to to grapple with philosophically, I think. Well, and all the most of the behavior stuff we're told about the alien race is given to us through a talking head with various zoologists and things like that in, in the th- and I think that structurally is important because uh, that's making also the claim, you know that. Uh, because for years, um, you know, there was um, phrenology or whatever that was uh, accepted um, um, medical pra- or medical science uh, that was to, like you were able to tell by the skulls of people what their behaviors are like. And uh, wouldn't you weird that when we started looking into this, it turns out that white people are great and everybody else sucks. Uh, <laughs> How strange. <laughs> um, so the whole the whole idea and it's why, you know, it's why um, minority groups um, in countries where they are, the minority group are skeptical towards science, science practices and medical practices because they've been experimented on and they've been lied about uh, um their humanity has been stolen through by like uh faulty uh science if you would even call it that it um because it's not real science there it's just under the label of science yeah yeah um uh so all of that i think is important is an important part of this whole thing now um as i usually do i read some reviews stuff and negative stuff and some of the negative reviews uh found this movie that's an anti-racism movie they found it in in itself racist specifically towards the nigerians but also in that um by placing these grotesque as he's talking about monsters as the minority group um and not having them you know um very redeemable at all it may it like it casts every minority group that we're supposed to uh, place in this allegory in replace of them well like if we're using apartheid in south africa all all black people and other minorities uh would fall into that group and then what are we saying about them if we're equating them to these uh um these aliens these m- grotesque aliens but i don't think that's necessarily 
while that comparison is uh, is there, I don't think that's the comparison he's trying to get us to make. What I think he's trying to do is actually dispel the myth myth of the noble savage or the the um, that there has to be something redeemable for us to give them to be hum- humane to people. That there has to be something like uh redeemable and and kind and good about the like these people that you have to be the as uh, nowadays it's actually um being talked about a lot with a lot of the current modern events uh about something like they call the good immigrant uh which is like as an immigrant or a child of an immigrant you have this overbearing uh feeling of social responsibility that you have to constantly be the straight and narrow that you can't demonstrate any of your flaws. You, you can't be a flawed human in society because you're not only a flaw to your, it's not only your personal flaw, it then becomes a flaw that everybody that looks like you uh, has. And so there's this whole, this whole structure, this whole structure that we have in society that doesn't allow minority groups in the Western world to behave like the rest of the pe- with the freedom that the rest of the people are able to behave with. And so um, in that way, I because I did also get a bit of that, like, wait a second, if if we're saying these people are the are, are were the black people in South Africa during apartheid, then what are we saying about the black people? But that's not what we're saying. No, it's yeah. I think we're, that he's and not... we're allowing we're allowing these people to be f- frail and fragile things because we don't associate with them right away, and we gradually grow and we see oh, like they have a social structure and a hierarchy, and there's intelligent people there's and there's intelligence and love and, and, and relationships and, and, and there's idiots and there's everything there's there is everything that you would find in a human society within their society well the very fact that in the in the movie itself they talk the right in the beginning they're like oh these are the worker class they're like they're not the smart ones you know as though it, it's lumping them all together into like worker bees or drone at worker ants that are just sort of like 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 hive minded in a way when we clearly see that that's not true because they are quite smart and they are i mean christopher johnson is able to repair create fuel and re essentially like re or not rebuild but like fix his ship with broken down garbage and like complete lack of resources yeah, I mean that and it's that statement that these are the blue collar workers therefore they're the, not the intelligent members of their society is a it's problematic in and of itself. Yeah, there's um there's actually a great James Baldwin quote uh on a on oppression where he says whatever white people do not know about negroes reveals precisely and inexecrably uh what they do not know about themselves. And I think that's it applies to this because referring to the uh, the blue collar, the lower class people as also the more violent and uh, less educated, less educated or and I mean, that might be a generalization you can make, but less intelligent isn't. No. Yeah, of course. Um, and I, anyways, and I and I think that reveal like that's that's revealing by making these like uh, transposing human assumptions onto this alien race. You're you're showing your ignorance of the both the human race and the aliens. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's really interesting. Um, so that leads me to well, it sort of leads me to the the second part that I mentioned, which was a question for you, which is, do you think that Vickers von der Merwe by the end of the movie? is a redeemed character 
Um, he's a like he's the most redeemed character that needed redemption in this story. The problem is to be redemptive, intent matters. Yes. And I'm not positive I know what his intent was when he comes back and saves Christopher Johnson. See, and and that is the biggest hurdle that I had with it because he he starts off as a character who has completely separated himself and placed himself on a pedestal above these aliens. And then when we hit the midpoint of the movie, as he's becoming one of them, he starts to understand and then he meets he sees Christopher Johnson's what he's doing and he real, realizes oh i always knew you were intelligent you prawns or whatever and he's like you can see that he's like at least to a point he's beginning to balance the scales in his head but it also is selfish and everything he does is for his own benefit and as soon as it becomes clear that Christopher finds it more important rightly so to go get help to save his people before he you know helps revert uh vegas back to his human form uh he immediately goes back to like i will do whatever i have to do wax him over the head uh and leaves him for dead and then only at the last minute does he come back well that but that's the part i mean that's the redemption moment is when he comes back in the mech suit to mm. to save him but all of what you just said that er, that so the last thing we do see him do as like a conscious human before he's like before his eye starts to change in the mech suit and that kind of thing. Which I mean, arguably when his eyes changing, that's like his soul. Changing, yeah. Yeah. If exactly. If they're really... the windows to the soul. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, it, to me, it's that, it's that decision he makes to choose himself and getting his hand back. So, and don't get it like wrong he is at, he absolutely just wants to fit back into normal society yeah he wants to go back into the, the working for the oppressor he he wants to go back to he this world where back, his... where he is in the power dynamics he's he's above these other people and he that's all he wants and and he chooses his hand and his humanity his personal singular humanity over 1.5 billion refugees in that or billion million refugees in that camp or whatever the number is that are I think that. it I think at the end they say oh god it, it grows to 2.5 2. 5 at, at the end the, but I, district I, 10. I, I yeah but I didn't know if this is before then or yeah or they, don't they don't exact because like the end of the movie it's like a two years later thing or whatever yeah. um where it's 2.5 and at the beginning, they say that there were over a million on the ship, or there were a million of them on the ship, and then at some point, it's over a million. So it's yeah, loose, so, but. anywhere. But but so he's cho choosing to damn because Christopher Johnson makes it uh, very clear that uh, the only chance for his survival and the survival of his of his comrades is for him to get this, get that fuel, get back to the ship. And once they're back to the ship, they have the technology they can do to fix whatever problems they have. And he chooses to take off in the ship without him, get it shot down. Yeah. Without knowing that, of course, it could get sucked up. Like. Yeah. And potentially, like, yeah, potentially damning the whole society, right? Yep, yep. And and not taking uh, Christopher Johnson with him by knocking him out, not even, like, knocking him out, throwing him down in the ship and taking off with him down there. Um he leaves him there. He's leave he's leaving him there and and damning him. 
Um, and it, that last turnabout when he like tries to walk off in the mech suit before he comes back, that's the, that's the motivation I don't understand. Why in that moment does he go, is it because he goes, well, my only, only chance now is if he can still get out of here and fix this. So if we're only going by clues that the movie gives us, the most apparent one is the recording that gets played over and over of he's not going to talk, we'll just kill him then. And, And so the movie is suggesting that he has a turn where he doesn't want Christopher to be killed by Kubis. He doesn't want... You know, maybe he's thinking about his, the kid because he does bring up the kid a couple of times to get Christopher back uh, from like when they're in the um, uh, genetic research lab or whatever. And he's like in a zone because he sees all this, uh, all the corpses of his fellow prawns. Um, <clears throat> so the movie seems to be suggesting that his turn there is his like realization of the real world impacts that his decisions are having, which is the death of this guy that he's sort of at least created some kind of bond with after being through all of this. But I also, in my head, uh, and this leads to another question I wanted to ask you as well. Um, in my head, I'm like, okay, so maybe this is what like the movie's suggesting or thinking, but like, is this what he's thinking or is, or is he thinking this is my only chance to be a human is Christopher and him getting away. Um, so I guess my question um, that that leads into is how reliable would you call the narration of this? Because there's all these people at the beginning who are telling their stories of, of what the world is like and how things are and whatever. And, and it's, you know, do you think that the narration of this, the, the story is reliable? Do you think we can trust that what happens is what happened? So I'll say, yeah, I, I don't think it's reliable at all. And I think it's be- because of what we've talked about, which is that this is this is the oppressor state. Yeah. Uh, and it's state media. And it's it's a it's set up to be a fluff piece on the <laughs> yeah, pros of yeah. the MNU. Which, I mean, totally sidebar for a second, but I really hate that name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Multinational United is just like it's. It feels like a, a placeholder name on paper that they never replaced. Yeah, but, but anyway, it, go, it goes to what like it is that it goes to the faceless corporation aspect of this, and and also so, um, and this is uh, I guess a little bit of a tangent off of that off of what you're talking about, but um, the other bit uh, another big thing this movie screamed at me when I watched it was was um, kind of really brought me to a kind of a Kafka place. Oh. Um now not re- not entirely, but it feels a little bit like the trial. Yeah, well, and I mean, you know, and obviously the metamorphosis is like a like, you know, a guy wakes up as a bug and that's yeah, that's yeah. the whole short story. And uh which is different than this because that person doesn't shoot like doesn't actively do anything and all that. Anyway. Um but and there but also within his work, he he often like is talking about the like a like a the uniformity and the and the bureaucracy and the like endless uh red tape that bureaucracy entails and all of that stuff like those are big like things that Kafka is trying to tear down in his work. Yeah, yeah. And that's somewhat what this mo- like this movie had like that bureaucracy is what's holding up this uh, oppressive state. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I found myself wondering throughout whether what what the structure was, and and I don't think that they needed to tell us, but I was very curious about like, is there what is the government structure like? Is the government the government we know today, or is the government corp corporatic, or because really the only power entities that we see is MNU which is a, a multinational corporation, you know? So like it is, yeah, it is a multinational corporation, except all the, <laughs> all the heads we see of it are like white South African dudes. Yeah. And, and they make a point <laughs> in the opening where they're in the office and, and there's a 50, 50 mix like of, of black and white people working in the office. But when you get to that higher up executive structure, it is certainly all white South Africans. Well, and even it being a multinational thing and just being African South Africans in general, as opposed to like, right? Yeah, it's strange to me that in the in this world where one alien spaceship has come to Earth, and instead of going as they say going to Chicago or New York, it's gone to Johannesburg. You're telling me that the entire world wouldn't have representatives down there. Well, so and and right at the beginning, and this is something that I that like also kind of set me up on this theme kind of thing is like oh in the opening they say oh well you know when this when we got in here and we found that like the whole world was watching us so we had to do the right thing and the right thing to them was essentially making a concentration camp you know like the, that was what the eyes of the world were seeing and well, not having a problem with it's the solution above extermination right or whatever and well and that's what uh, that's i guess to go back to that point about like how it's really challenging that it's non-humans that we're talking about it's like there's a world in which you can be on the side of the humans here where it's like there is a species of of being coming from another planet another solar system another galaxy maybe that is coming to our world and we have to defend ourselves so the and this is a thing I, I actually wanted to get into as well because um as you've rightly said it this movie sets up the humans as the bad guys and us to care for the oppressed alien species this alien species though uh is physically bigger and stronger than humans have, our, our guns don't have technology well. that could that could yeah have technology that could wipe us out and and we have no evidence of this, but potentially based on the numbers on one ship. And if we're going off what humans send on a ship, it's it's minute versions of their population. So if there's a million on a ship, there's potentially billions somewhere else. And, the and other we also thing... have that news stuff from the beginning, which if we're to believe any of that, they're derailing trains and burning buildings and things like that. Yeah. But we don't know where in the timeline that is of them being yeah. locked away. And, versus... and I mean, and, but then the other interesting thing is the amount of weaponry that's on this worker bee ship is interesting. Yeah. Uh, now I don't know if that's just what, if you have a million people on a ship, you would obviously have some sort of security forces, and so sure. does this fall into that, or is this is there a raid in force? Why do they also? have giant mech walkers that clearly are not useful inside a ship? Because the, the, from what we see of the ship, they wouldn't really fit or maneuver very well in there. So why do they have these mech armors that are clearly like meant for 
use beyond the walls of their ship. Additionally, where this species come from, clearly they have wars with interspecies stuff because why else would you DNA tag all your weaponry? Yeah, true, So true. they clearly fight some other group of people um, or other group of people, other group of beings that are... That are Human, not them humanoid enough that they're able to fight each other uh not that that's a human necessarily human quality but it, it's uh or animal like animal quality or whatever we want to call ourselves as the larger genus yeah um, well, i mean we are animals uh yeah so and that's the, a big thing about this movie is letting go of the animal anim, animal nature versus Anyways. the human nature yeah. yeah and and i um but yeah, I think th- that that's the dangerous thing is for the most part of this podcast, we've been talking about this the whole time saying like uh, and using the the comparison to various minority groups being placed in concentration camps and or uh, reserves and or whatever else uh, colonialist white people have done for the most part in history, uh, not exclusively, but for the most part, uh, certainly in modern history. Um uh, but yeah, there is. It is a different thing when you're doing interplanetary species, and because the other thing I thought about was, um, if their fuel turns humans into prawns, they perhaps there's a world in which all of these prawns were once humans, right? Ooh. Right, and then. Or some sort of species that has been turned into a prawn in the same way humans been turned into prawns. Right, that they weren't always that, that this is like a crustacean sl- looking. Yeah, that perhaps this is some sort of slave class of another being that uses this technology to manipulate DNA to do this. See, they're, they're also oxygen breathing because their blood is red, so it's oxygen oxygenized yeah, yeah, yeah. blood. And they're 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 able to live on Earth without helmets on. Yeah, so like they clearly come from a place that's very similar. So like, well, there's an argument here, and that's kind of why I led this off with a movie that puts a twist on the alien invasion thing because it really does, like, other than what's the authorial intent seems to be, which is a a an, a discussion of the the director's experiences with apartheid and living in south africa through that time and like all of the atrocities and horrible things that racism creates and that and like an anti-racist sort of commentary there is this whole other thing where it is like kind of an alien invasion movie where arguably you could say that like this ship was a precursor that was coming here to scan and figure out what was going on and that by Christopher getting back he's now going to return with a giant army and destroy the destroy humans or some such. So and we'll have to wait till the sequel to see. But, <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> uh, uh but uh, so th- I was thinking along those lines as well, but what I thought was more interesting is if this was a ship on its way to do like if it is the worker bees as we've mentioned many many times if this is a blue collar worker ship and it's heading to some place in the galaxy or the or whatever or the the milky way or whatever to like for resources of some kind and that they are aware of earth but earth doesn't have whatever resource they're going to collect and or there it's just too much trouble to come down here so they don't stop here often or whatever and they were just on their way somewhere whatever engine trouble 
cause them to land here or whatever. Because they're See, clearly so that was another when, question clearly, I had. Well, because when we open it up, they're all like sickly in the ship, right? There's clearly like to me, yeah, something's gone wrong on the ship. And that's why it's here. But now, we don't know what it is. No. And it seems as though it isn't really a problem because the command module just goes back up and the ship leaves. But to get my, to get, yeah, perhaps. And But to get to, like, what I was trying to get to is that um, I remember watching a, uh, like, I think it's by Vox Media or whatever. There was a video on YouTube that was essentially like, why were black people the slaves that the Western Europe chose to exploit? Um and essentially, the main conclusion, it's they were on the way to the places where we were going to exploit. Uh, like, so, oh. so like the Western, the white Western powers of Europe could just go down the coast, pick up a couple boatloads of slaves, then go to an island where they're going to plant bananas or grow tobacco or whatever, or make it all the way to the States where they're going to plant cotton and et cetera, et cetera. So like where they were going to exploit resort land and resources, they, the re the reason that Africa was the continent that they, they pillaged and, and stole all these people and cultures from it is because essentially it was on the way, not realistically, but the most on the way from yeah. Europe to the Americas and all the islands in between. Um, and so that's what got me thinking about how these, this could be like a, like, like a slave class ship of prawns and earth is something they, maybe they come by and they kidnap some people every now and again, or suck up some people or whatever, and transform them into the, on their way to somewhere else that they're going to exploit oh. for resources is like the bigger metaphor I was building right. in my head while I, I was see, watching I this. But I don't know that that's like this is this is this is very loose and I haven't thought a ton about it, but I just thought it was kind of interesting, like an interesting dynamic to look at. And that in the same way that the the white Anglo-Saxon peoples of Western Europe look down on the African, the dark skinned African people, perhaps this race looks down on humans. And that's, you know, I don't know. That's I mean, there there's. It's clearly not, uh, from what I can see, it's clearly not the read that is intended, but it's a read that is also very clearly there. Um, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it seems to, to add up a lot. Other, other than the one question I would follow that up with is, like, if this is the thing, how did it go so horribly wrong this time that they ended up... Lots of, lots of Spanish galleons sunk. You know, fair. Good point. Good point. Uh, or English galleons or whatever. Like lots of ships went down for various, I mean, generally weather related, but also uh, driver error. <laughs> uh, driver error. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, no, you know I, I mean? totally like, get it. I totally get like, it. Like, so there, so this could, like, the, I don't know the reason this, the spaceship had problems and why it sat there for however many months what it was at six months just hovering before anybody got into it and then once they got into but and then why is in the 20 plus years that it's been there is christopher johnson the only one that was making an effort to fix it or is he the only one and all of there, it? there's a lot of sort of moments of convenience that create some plot holes you know like why does it take kubus for example an entire day to get a team together to go after him 
Vickis when he traces the call. Like, they traced it. Why would they not have been ready and just moved on him right away? But also, and I mean, maybe this is the just what I've come to know as cell phone information now. But like, as soon as they, because he makes two phone, they don't trace the first phone call to his wife. They just listen to it or for whatever reason. And then they trace the second phone call. But that means he's had the cell phone on him the whole time. But the the logic I get is that you can trace it when the call is being made, but you can't. But except you can theoretically track it. Well, then the, the, the other what, thing is what, though. But that's the that's old phone technology. But then as soon yeah. as cell phone technology got introduced in films, for the most part, maybe not. But this is maybe again. This is maybe two thousand nine, and I've now forgotten. But like the whole thing with cell phones was you have to take the card, the SIM card out and destroy the battery or whatever, or else even when it's off, you can cut, you can trace a cell phone. Yeah. 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 So that, I guess I didn't understand why once they knew what phone he had in his hand, they couldn't trace. Like that seemed like a big yeah. fault to me, yeah. but also but, but, maybe I'm forgetting that that, that wasn't what we, that's, that wasn't in the zeitgeist. Back but then but even earlier. that completely aside, because I, I feel like the, the zeitgeist of people tracking your phones wasn't really a huge prominent thing until the 2010s, uh, it, 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 in my memory. But um, even if we cut that out entirely and we just talk about the second phone call, he gets the second phone call and is traced at like 6 o'clock in the afternoon one day, and he isn't moved on until, based on the lighting midday the day afterwards and he's already gone it's like if you're tracing his call you should have a, a team ready and you should be like moving already yeah like it like it the the or even uh the fact that he's clearly sick uh, several people have seen that he's been contaminated by some alien fluid and nobody says anything nobody does anything nobody brings him to the hospital to examine him until he pukes all over his cake and passes out like there like there's so many stages along the way like his nose starts bleeding black fluid while he's eating and he just goes back to the office and starts doing paperwork but i mean for the most part the people that actually see him in that in that state of illness are his underlings yeah, I guess Fundi's way and, and trend. And then if we're and if we're talking about this like authoritarian state government, I don't think it would be common practice for an underling to report or narc or do whatever to their boss. Yeah, okay, fair. Especially if you're wrong in that situation. Um, well, because his assistant is the one who releases the confidential information about the experiments. The genetic, and yeah, that's yeah. why he's in, sitting in jail. Which it's, also, because he's, he's a whistleblower. Is that he's in jail for calling out a company on their shit, which means that clearly MNU did not get in trouble for all of the things they were doing. He just got arrested. Yeah. Which is crazy. Well, yeah. In, in a, in a, like in a similar moment to like the Snowden or the, uh, Chelsea, whatever her name was, and uh, there's another one more recently, um, Winner. Somebody Winner or Winner Somebody. There's like three now whistleblowers okay. for the U.S. government um, that I I don't remember the names of the last two. I just remember Edward Snowden because, anyway. Yeah, so the, the whistleblowing on the CIA, the NSA, and whoever else has been whistleblown on, um, we've seen the effects that they... That... I mean, Snowden's still in Russia, isn't he? 
Yeah, and uh, Chelsea was still in jail last I ch- checked, and so is the winner woman as well. Um, they're all still uh, either in hiding or in jail. I-, I think Chelsea, which is the middle one, she might have gotten out by now. I don't know that for sure, though. Uh, but anyway, uh, that's besides the point. Very often. Well, it is and isn't, but, but, which is that, of course, like it makes sense, I suppose, in a way that somebody who exposes yeah. big, important secrets would, of course, be arrested by the, you know, ruling the, authority. The effects of what they've done is a net positive for the society in which they live, but... We'll have to see in District Ten. But you, but you, <laughs> but you also, but there's, all, but then you can see the other side of that is where you can't have, you can't have low-level employees deciding which confidential files are actually confidential and which right. ones aren't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guess uh, to go back to the um, sort of Deus Exe sort of thing, the the other thing that I felt was super convenient about plot stuff was that every time. Every single time Vickis loses his fortitude, his will fades, he starts to, like, become hopeless. He gets a phone call from his wife every time. And even though you know that most of what she's saying is either... Well, it's hard to know what's true because you see in the beginning that she clearly still cares about him. And you see at the end that she clearly still cares about him. But there's all these, like, this... Because you don't see her side of the conversation, you don't know how, um, I guess, cooperative she's being. But either way... See, I would say the re- the reason I think she cares for him and she cares for him through the whole thing is because she takes that first phone call once the news story comes out that he was having sex with... Right. Uh, ...prawns and, and all of that. And... and um, the mere fact that she takes that phone call, I would say, shows that she cares. That yeah. there's some semblance of care yeah. or whatever there. And then the second phone call, even uh, that one, I don't know what we're supposed to believe. Because that's the one where, to him, it's more positive. Because she's not going like, what the heck's going on? Who the See, heck? The one, to me, the one where she was mad feels like it was... If we're going by the argument that they're listening to all of their conversations and she knows they're listening then the argument is it would be, could be made that she's getting angry because she's trying to provoke him because if she can provoke him to come out of hiding, then they can catch him. And the second one is like, where are you? You know, I, I miss you. I love you. Why, why oh. can't we go back? So both of those feel felt to me like cooperative attempts for her to with try her and father. draw him out yeah, with yeah. her father, which is why I was doubtful. Interesting. Okay, I read the first one like it's her and she cares and she's picking up the phone because she wants answers and she's not getting them from her dad and the ones she's getting from the news she can't believe. Yeah. The second phone call I thought was more her dad and and co, the leaders of Well, because that's when them. we see them listening. Yeah, and I thought that was more them having pushed a narrative on her to be like just get him to come back to your place or whatever like meet him somewhere or tell us where he which is. is that you know i mean i'm sure it's used in real life but in film you know using the paramour of of the the protagonist on the run to to draw him out is classic him or her out is a classic trope in film so i i didn't feel it as much on that first one just because she was so angry and accusatory and it didn't feel like she was trying to draw him out in that way. But equally, if when he hangs up that call, he's like, I got to get to her to make a decision uh, or to to make her realize why I made the decisions I've made. 
you could see that being a an earned decision that his character would make yeah yeah okay yeah fair enough i i i guess part part of what put doubt in my mind is that because of the interview pieces in the beginning where she seems so soft and so caring that that like angry outburst seems so out of character that it felt to me like it was at least somewhat staged to a point i i didn't get that at all but I, it's interesting and i i might even take a look at that scene again after this just to kind of see if i get that read off of it at all because i didn't I, like you bringing it up is the first i thought of oh, it, interesting. and it and it it's intriguing well i would love to hear what you think if you if you do if you do go back to it but we talked about um i think we're getting kind of close here to to sort of wrapping things up but uh there was a couple of points i wanted to touch on which is like the humor in this is very very well done we talked about it a bit with like the the voiceover stuff and the trucks and whatever um but overall there's just like this subtle satire to it that you know breaks up a lot of it like one of the things that stood out and i didn't notice it a couple of times when i watched it at first but like when he's in the mech walker and he like picks up a pig and just flings this pig at the guys as like a weapon because he doesn't really know how to use this walker was quite funny um and i don't know if this is intentional in fact i know it isn't intentional probably because of when avengers came out perhaps but when they're talking about um how the ship is being the command module is being picked up and the the news announcer is like, this is amazing. I, I've never seen anything like this. A beam of light is, you know, and, and the only thing my brain could think is like the the joke about Marvel movies and how every single one of them has a sky beam coming down somehow. And I just like immediately I, was th- I felt like satire of like, oh, my God, I've never seen a beam of light coming out of the sky before. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, timeline wise, it doesn't work at no, all. But, it doesn't. Uh, but it it is funny to think about. And it is funny that they... But they're pl- that. But that's an alien trope, you know. Like, um, before I even knew an alien movie abduction by name, beams. But that. But yeah. But having some sort of craft that pokes into the top eighth of your screen cell on a, even a like even in an animation, and which it has some sort of circular beam that comes down, is yeah. is like I was aware of that from. Far a young side, child. yeah, Far Side Comics yep, or yep, Looney yep. Tunes or Simpsons. It's a tale as old as time, if you will. Well, certainly as old as like Lovecraft and and uh, <laughs> and those guys. Yeah, yeah. And Orson Welles doing his uh, his radio um, bit. Yeah. But um, the story, I, I guess, the story I think comes pretty well. Uh, it's it's obviously very plot driven. It's somewhat um real time over 72 hours kind of thing it's exciting it's engaging it has action it has comedy it has aliens and robots but it's also got this like really powerful political backdrop that you can engage with um that gives it a lot of potency if you choose to think about it that way and if you choose to, I guess, turn off your brain and think about it like alien invaders, you know, like I can't, I couldn't. Um, having that conversation with you just b- before a minute ago now was really interesting because I had a really hard time seeing the movie that way. But I knew there was a read there. So having that conversation, I was was interesting to sort of like 
break that down. I, I still like I still lie more on the side of like siding with the aliens and siding oh, course, with that. Yeah. And but that's also I'm very well aware that that's you know this is 2021 and uh, we've had like a kind of roughly six or seven year uh, societal education that I mean has been happening since the 50s. But I mean. For for a, lo- for a lot of people picking in up the, a lot in of the ground. mainstream, it got really uh, interesting and more educational in the last five years for a lot of people. And so it's with all of that in mind that, you know, I have the reads of this that I have. But I, I, I did want to say, like, you know, if if another species came down and because uh, I mean, it's in even all the new Superman movies or TV shows, um, he, he's all good. The government's cool with them because he demonstrates to the government that he's a he's a good alien. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the moment he shows some independence or authority, they try to clamp down on him. They Batman the government Superman. well, and or like like the government has like is developed krypton kryptonite weapons because we need something. One day he may turn on us, and we'll need something to destroy him. Which, then. objectively speaking is like the only practical thing to do if you have some form of being amongst you that is significantly more powerful than you and while it seems to be on your side could turn like you would be kind of stupid to not have their kryptonite ready in the worst case scenario but that's also speaking from a cynical perspective of blomkamp talks about how he likes in his movies he he looks at things a lot more cynically and looks at people and the way we do things a lot more cynically, which very much lines up with my own writing and movie making taste. Um, so it, it, yeah, it it felt like it more realistic in my eyes, but the last thing I wanted to say about the whole racism on uh, our satire and, uh, satire about racism is the fact that the only other prawn that gets a name and we've been using prawn the whole time when we're told in the movie that that's the derogatory term. For we these. also have no other name for them. We don't, and we don't. Yeah. And they don't give themselves a name. And then the only one that gets named is Christopher Johnson, which I think is like such a Anglo-white name. Oh, it's like the most which bland, is, yeah. Which is that... Besides calling him John Smith. No, but it, but it is that, right? It yeah. is it, because that's <laughs> that's what English, pe- English speakers especially, but the white colonizers in general would never bother learning the names of of the minority well the groups of the culture the cultural names of the people they would go and inhabit their land they would just give them new names and they would give them white people names and they and then you know like there's uh first nations people in canada that have like french names because the french were the people that interact with them and it's exactly that it's that whole thing or or like uh, i at pier 21 in canada or ellis island in the states even eastern european or irish or different people like that they would they would anglicize or protestantize their their name when they would come to the these countries and that kind of thing to try like you know, there's lots of there's lots of evidence of that Cha- changing. And, and the name. I think some of it now. I don't know well for sure, but I uh, from what I have heard and seen, there are some of that is is other people doing it, and some of that there are. I've talked to people who change their names because they were just tired of hearing their name mispronounced all the time, and it felt harder for them and more separating for them 
Well, in fact, I, I like, but even with immigrants and children of immigrants, like the um, the the writer and actress and and creator uh, Mindy Kaling, mm. I believe that's Mindy Kaling. I think is her whole first name. Oh, and she, oh, I didn't know that. And I think she just goes like she split it up into a first name last name thing, or or at least Mindy isn't her whole first name. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's a lot like it's a like that's the English shortened version and. And her like her work is always about uh, her characters trying to find that because they feel very American, but America constantly reminds them that they're not American. Yeah. So it's that weird. Anyways, that I'm that, that I, duality I, of that being du- that duality two places of be- at once. Yes, exactly. Which is another theme that I wanted to bring up, mention that didn't get talked about because we just you know as we do kept going on, and I missed it. But the idea of duality and and like the fact that you're in in two spaces at once is a huge um a huge part of this obviously because the main character is you know in two different places at once but accepted in neither of them and you know so there's that that sort of big yeah and it's i mean again relating it to like uh canada's uh first nations and aboriginal people um there is now a whole registered nation of of metis which is the it's the well french european and uh, First Nations mix children mm-hmm. and descendants, and uh, but the reason they w- were made into their registered own nation is because they were not accepted by the white people or the Aboriginal people, so it was um, they had to find their own land or their own place to be and their own way of being and and that kind of thing, and then years, 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 years later they were recognized officially by the government. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is it that um that mixed personage that he is becoming um i would be interested i'll be interested to see that say we do a three-year time jump between this story and when the next movie comes out or maybe they do it in real terms so maybe it's 20 12 years later or something like that um and if his character has been a prawn living in district 10 for that long will he remember his humanity what will how will he be different if he gets returned to being a human what does that neat mean for the greater version of who he is yeah yeah um because that isn't an experience that many people not many not many people of the oppressor class get to literally become the oppressed class and then become back to the oppressor yeah, class. Yeah. Which I guess we should we should clarify that he um, Neil Blomkamp has said that he is writing a District Ten, which is a sequel to District Nine, uh, with Charlto. Oh God, I'm gonna Copley. Copley yep, and uh, Terry as well, his wife, right? Yeah. Um, that they're working on a sequel. Uh, no, inf- I've looked a bit into it. I couldn't find a whole lot of information about um, about any of it, other than that it's happening. Or is in the works to happen, um, but yeah, I, I would be really intrigued to see where and how that takes place, and and what we're gonna see of of um, Vicus and if at all or anything, because there's a lot that can be talked about in the modern time now. Uh, absolutely, uh, and re- like really, absolutely, like, and especially if you think of that fuel as a contagion with what mm-hmm. we've just gone through mm-hmm. with the pandemic too it's very interesting yeah, yeah yeah um but also seems very difficult because 
drinking and eating the flesh of these animals wasn't making the Nigerians turn into them and potentially was making them weaker. I don't know. There was I mean they never specified, but Yeah. I mean that the leader of the Nigerian gang was in a wheelchair for some reason. Was he the entire time? He never got out of that wheelchair. He was, oh, and, no, and it no. looked I guess like the start of it. I he's he's sitting in that scene, and I just never clued yeah, in so that he's, he's in a wheelchair. He, he's a wheelchair user, but we don't know why he is. Right. Well, yeah. Um, One can assume a rough life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I suppose so. Uh, and you don't see a lot of his legs either. Like there's some, they're included a bit, but it's and, hard to tell. And only because I just brought him up, but I, we will say so. There's, a, I, I, I wanted to say that. Um, We've talked a lot about some really interesting and touchy subjects and stuff, but it's also there's some stuff that we haven't gone into as great detail, and that's probably because neither of us have the education or the or the perspective to talk uh, eloquently about certain subjects. Um, but like as I mentioned, er- like way in the early, one of the big criticisms of this movie was the depiction of the Nigerians, yeah, uh, for their use of witch doctory magic, for like a lack of better term. And the whole like that the fact that the Nigerians are the gun runners and the they're the mob of the underworld. Um, and while uh, you know, as we've talked about in the last five years, our eyes have been opened to um, to representation and how that matters. Uh, to be honest, when I watched this movie in two thousand and nine, and still when I watch this movie now, the fact that they used the term Nigerian didn't make me go, "Oh, all Nigerians are bad." It no, was just a way to identify the bat like if i made a movie and it was it was this movie set in new york maybe they're irish or italian or whatever but it's also of course understandable on the other side that the nigerians were not particularly happy about oh, no, how no. they were portrayed absolutely um i the, just don't the, think the word it's a you're comment looking on for. nigerian sorry yeah no it's it's not and and he talked neil blomkamp talks about how he was he really wanted to bring uh muti i, I believe is how it's pronounced which is the the Afrikaans word for essentially like witchcraft kind of thing um and he talks about how it was in his time growing up in South Africa it was a prominent part of some of the culture even if it was just that it was it was they were aware of it as being part of their past like I know there was a lot of stuff with Resident Evil 5 or 4 uh one of them was set in Africa one of the more recent ones and people got a little upset because um there was a lot of like visual representation of, of voodoo and like skulls and, and, and sort of like these sort of witchcraft looking things that people were not super pleased was sort of the defining uh, imagery for being in Africa. Um, but it has some connection to the culture and he felt that it was important that it was involved because of how much it was, around the at least the knowledge and cultural information of it was around when he grew up yeah but i guess i guess this this our our new more recent outlook on on the world and in with media we do have to be a lot more careful with Mm -hmm. what name we splash in there to be insert blank bad guy which which to be fair one of the things that this movie did really well was integrate um colloquial phrases and terms in in afrikaans and in in south african slang and things like that to use like appropriate and uh at least culturally used terms that that were sprinkled throughout that i i went through and googled a whole bunch of them because i was like oh these are interesting words that i don't know what they mean and then after i watched the movie i watched elysium because i was like i follow up let's just see what where it went and i noticed that 
uh, Charlotte was saying some of those phrases in that movie too. And I was like, I never noticed that before, but now I see it. Anyways, interesting. Interesting. But well, I guess, uh, I guess next I want to ask you if, uh, if you think you need to be in any sort of mood to watch this. Oh, here we go. Um, yeah, I think so. I think that there's a lot of really heavy subject matter. There's a lot of generally messed up stuff that happens and if you aren't in a space of mind to be able to watch this uh, aborting of eggs scene, say, or like uh, in a place where you can comfortably watch, maybe not comfortably, but, you know, you can handle watching a movie that is very, it gets into the nitty gritty of what racism is and can be. Um, and I think that you got to be prepared for that, even if it is also meant to be a fun action alien movie it's it's both and you got to be ready for both uh i can tell by that that you're a bigger sci-fi slash horror fan than i am because you didn't mention the body horror stuff of this movie oh yeah that part didn't even intellectually the racism and like the um aborting egg pod scenes and stuff and 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 like the racism uh themes they're the most troubling but visually, the most troubling stuff for me is him pulling a tooth out or biting a fingernail off, yeah, or like yeah. his skin uh, being torn through by by the by the exoskeleton exoskeleton of the shrimp below it. Which is part of what when I said before we briefly touched on how great the visual and special effects are, and and like that component of like pieces coming off and his arm and like there was there was like when he's biting his nails to try and see which which ones comes loose and then he pulls his thumb uh, yeah there was some when moments. he pulls that thumbnail off like you just <laughs> you just did it in the room as like a mime and i shiver i got a shiver up my spine it's um i i uh i'm a fairly like i'm not a big horror guy i like sci-fi but i'm not a big horror guy and part of the reason i'm not a big horror guy is i'm quite squeamish to horror stuff and definitely when it's like, I'm not squeamish to like, a guy gets his arm shut off and there's blood squirting out of the joint. That doesn't bug me. I don't know why. Uh, maybe that just, I'm, I'm uh, you know, desensitized to that from years of video games and other such things and Monty Python. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, um, but yeah, uh, fingernails getting pulled off and things like that. It's the realism yeah, in my just, head. Like It just seems so rotten and gross and just like i I can feel it because he's the protagonist and you're empathizing with him it's then you're instantly your it's your thumb coming up to your mouth to test your nail and you can imagine like putting the pressure you would normally bite your thumbnail with but instead the whole nail comes off like (laughs) yeah well and and i think like to to talk about that for a half second I, i think that that's what makes really good body horror it's not the the evil dead level like arm goes off and there's a fountain of blood like that kind of stuff it's not realistic it's not something that a person can feel and imagine happening to themselves but i have been in a situation where i've looked down at my finger and my whole fingernail was gone once before when i was super young and it was really painful and i remember like like watching that i i felt that again and like watching like him pulling the sores out or like losing his teeth like all of that stuff is stuff that we have enough grounding in reality to know what that feels like to be made uncomfortable 
that and i think uh again we didn't really touch on it but just and this isn't the section for it but um that was another thing i liked that d- defines this movie against all those other movies with a white savior in it um because a lot of those movies have the the white savior for lack of a better term going native yeah in the yeah end. even look at like um uh, what's that Jim, james cameron movie the uh, avatar, avatar. Uh, like sully in that movie literally become like becomes an avatar of the thing and then eventually making the decision to become just navi at the end or whatever uh not to spoil a <laughs> movie we're not talking about that came out the same year as this movie by the way oh um, well, it did didn't it yeah, yeah. and very very similar th- well one's the colonial theme and this is the refugee theme kind of thing yeah. but yeah. uh similar colonial power power structures um but and you know and it, and same within dances with wolves like you know they have the character bite the buffalo heart and they have all like he's he embraces slash becomes slash whatever oh, like all of that type of thing whereas this movie he re, he's reject he's rejects he's being forced to transition to becoming the minority group and he actively hates it and he actively tries to prevent it and he and it is horrifying to him that he's becoming the lesser class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, anyways, um, but going back there's, to the... There's, I, there's a lot of stuff that we could continue to yeah, talk yeah. about. And there's a lot more that can be said. So, I just want to pref- or yeah. end that thought by saying Which, there's more and we've thought about more. <laughs> it's just there's only so much to fit into. Yeah, and you can absolutely tell it's two white dudes talking about this movie because we've prefaced it like seven times throughout this thing. That like, listen, we know, but also let's talk about like, it. Like, this is important and we... Yeah. Should, we should be involved in talking about it but you know yeah absolutely and and the awareness uh, and of of all the things we're talking about but um but yeah oh so overall though to get it back to i do think you need to be in a certain mood to watch this movie i don't think it's something you can just pop on i do think it's for a mature audience so you i wouldn't show this to children oh no um I mean, it's your judgment call on teenagers, I guess, but <laughs> whatever. Um, but it is, it isn't as heavy, like with all of that said, it isn't a super, you could watch this movie and detach yourself from the greater meaning if you so choose, which I also, in one of the few interviews that I watched with Blomkamp, he said that he wanted to make an action movie, but that had some weight to it, a little yeah, depth to it. Exactly. And and to, to to do the avatar thing for a second as well like in the same way that in that movie I, I remember spending a night in university where a couple of friends of mine were like we're gonna watch this movie and just cheer for the humans the whole time and you feel like a piece of shit the whole time you're doing it but it like gives you a weird perspective on how to look at things and you can certainly do that with this movie too yeah 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 so uh having said that would you was this a rewatchable movie would you revisit this oh one? yeah 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 but it, I, I i certainly would and i have but i also i i don't know that it's like a like a regularly rewatchable you know like i wouldn't i wouldn't throw this on in the same way that i would put on lord of the rings every year um you know it's it's very much uh like i can't i would come back to it in doses but well yes uh yeah and on a similar theme i i i literally haven't seen this probably since 2011 maybe and so 10 years later it does ring differently to me than it did when i first watched it yeah. and there are some interesting themes and stuff that but it's still that i picked up, up the first time but maybe 
bounced out this time as opposed to just kind of being there when I dug a little, sifted through it first time. Um, It is a rewatchable film. I would also put this, like, uh, for sci-fi films, I would put this uh, on a best of top 50, top 25. I I definitely think it belongs there for sure. Um, I, I think... Uh, partly be just because it's a bit of an like you, you you how you opened up it's a bit of the anti-invasion film in the same way unforgiven was qualified as an anti-western yeah this is yeah. a bit of an anti-alien invasion film it's the it's it it flips most of those tropes on their head um but still but in it also informs on what that type of movie is because of all the trope flipping um so yeah i think i think if you're interested in film uh and filmmaking and writing and that kind of thing i think this is a very cool movie to look at and also something to aspire to for a first feature like this is a first this is out of the block first feature and yes uh the director had had a lot of uh schooling and education and and, short films and and things like that and and um uh, well, not a lot of education necessarily, but a lot of education uh, on his own time, and and then great meeting great mentors. It's a very strong first feature, and you know, and and yeah, and he that that alive and Joburg short, and his connection with Peter Jackson almost got or did get him Halo, but then that went away because of Microsoft. Well, and in the same way too, I guess that it's like so the lead Charlto from what i saw in a lot of the interviews and stuff like this was his sort of debut acting like he viewed himself as a producer as a behind the scenes guy as like a a dude who was doing you know the work of getting it made but not a performer and hadn't performed before but um uh, blomkamp said that he he saw in charlto an ability to improv that was unparalleled and throughout this movie he improved everything. The script was written, and when they went through, they were like, "Okay, so this like he was his his the way he said it was once every ten pages there was a line that they're like this needs to be said the way that it is in the script, but everything else when he went on he threw the script out and improved essentially what he was saying. That's really interesting, and I I because I heard he had done that in a lot of the documentary stuff at the start. That mostly was like, we're just going to point a camera at you. And so all the stuff about him with the microphone and the nice background and him getting the picture of his wife out to show that. Yeah, I had yeah. heard that was all him. Um, or at least maybe it was scripted that he gets the picture out. But everything he like said about his wife. Like the beats are there. Yeah. But like the, the things he's saying, if not exactly entirely improv, are yeah. not what was in the script entirely. Yeah, he yeah. improv it all to I would be surprised if they didn't at least if they weren't a little closer to the script when he's talking to like Christopher Johnson. Yeah, well, and because, that, that's where I was kind of because curious. he's improving one half of the conversation. Then, so what's the other half? Of the, and and he could do that. He could have improved it on the day, and they went back and filled in what would make sense in between there. And it could also be that what what Blomkamp is saying was improved was that there were lines. And that when they went on the day, as actors are wont yeah. to do, he didn't necessarily get put it out in exactly yeah, the way he wasn't it was going worded. Word for, like it's yeah. not an Aaron Sorkin script where the where it's written in in I am and you, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. need to like nail the rhythm of it. Um, yeah, so um, this is a rewatchable movie. Is my conclusion. And 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 like you said, a great you know first film for both the director and 
and the lead. Yeah, and which which adds credence to the rewatchable, especially if you're a student or or you love film. This is something to visit again to mm-hmm, see what mm-hmm. what these what a first time actor and a first time director were able to do with thirty million dollars. Which is again, if you offered that to any first time a- actor and director, like a project like that, it would be the best moment of their life. But, oh, I would love that. But it's it is really interesting to see how efficient they were in the use and the storytelling and how they were able to because you know where they spent their money was a lot in the post-production yeah 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 so the script and when you think about the story in that way they very very well constructed for what it and very well thought out for what they they knew they were what budget they were going to have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh finally um I guess we've kind of answered this, but is this a movie you would seek out is, or tell someone to seek out if it yeah. wasn't easy to find? Yeah, I think it's I think it's an important watch for anybody. I think that it's it's an important addition to the list of science fiction films because it does again it breaks the mold both in what the genre film of a science fiction film is, but also it it tackles some difficult issues that uh, a lot of science fiction sort of avoids and really could do with not avoiding so um i i definitely think that it is it is a a one that should be sought out yeah because this is set somewhat present day or or near future and um um it doesn't get to do that cop out that science fiction gets to do which is in the future racism's been kind of sorted out and this isn't star trek it's for the most part humans are all cool with each other and we're one class and people now yeah. um because that's star trek that's star wars that's all of that stuff like there's... well and at the end of the day like arguably you can see like with the expanse how that makes sense because if if you have a common enemy which is somebody who is not human you're gonna give up your petty or squabbles with other humans in favor of the bigger conflict right so they're just but there always seems to need to be an enemy four people for some reason yeah absolutely and a common enemy yeah right yeah Yeah. um but yeah so i would say for many of the reasons we outlined i think this is a a definite seeker i think i would tell if someone hadn't seen it i would say you should look for it try to find it somewhere rent it buy it whatever Uh, maybe not buy it but i think with it being a tool for filmmakers to learn from i think owning it isn't a terrible thing i mean supporting filmmakers is always a good thing and we should always buy or or spend money to view their product oh no no i i'm not saying that. i just mean like know, to rent it once whether whether to rent it once and have it or to own it for the rest yeah, of your life yeah. for the difference of ten dollars i don't know own it i guess yeah 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 um but yeah so i think uh i think that's all we have on this uh but as for ratings oh what do you wh- oh. where did you find yourself landing on this well you know I thought it was great, uh, and it, it was it was no contest. I just had to give it like a hundred cat food cans. Ooh. wow! Yeah, a hundred cat food. Cans. Like you can get a Mac Walker for a hundred cat food cans. So that's true. That's a pretty valuable, <laughs> yeah, resource. Um, what can I give it? Uh, uh, you know what? I'm giving it nine districts. Oh wow! <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. uh that's a lot of districts. It's, that's yeah. And they're big and we're it's various sizes, dude, yeah. probably. Clearly, population variance and things, but like yeah. in the multi millions for yeah. sure. Oh, yeah, just yeah. yeah. That's huge. That's huge. <laughs> well, thank you guys very much for listening. As always, you can find us on social media. We are on Twitter at CinematicsCast, and we are on Instagram at CinematicsPodcast. Uh, we would love it if you could give us a, a review. A little, It gives us a little bit of a bump in our viewership and helps us get seen by others, and it also helps us figure out what you're liking and not so we can continue to improve and make better stuff. As always, there are spoilers in this episode, so if you want the uh, movie to be not spoiled for you, you better watch it before you come listen to the episode. So until next week, thanks for watching. We'll see you guys then. Uh-huh.